Thank you, Neville. Really appreciate your help leading the singing this evening. Uh, let us turn now to the book of Acts, chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, just want to read the first few verses, the first eight verses of Acts chapter 1. The former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after that he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost, not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons, which the Father hath put in his own power. But ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Amen. We know that God will bless the reading of his word to our hearts. Let us pray. Father, as we come to think upon thy word and dwell upon this topic tonight that you have set before us, we pray for your help and for your wisdom. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth, meditation of my heart, would be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Amen. According to the statistics maintained by the United Nations, the world has passed a new population threshold this month with 8 billion people recorded as being alive at the one time. Now, we can't be definitely sure that there has never been a larger population in the history of the earth. The world that existed before the flood may well have had eight billion souls. That probably is unlikely, but not entirely and completely impossible. The years that transpired between creation and the flood, they're very difficult to compute. They're very difficult to work out in terms of the length of time. But those particular years have given us the genealogies of certain people, but we don't have the genealogies of every person and every family. And the world before the flood was much closer to creation. And while it was a world that suffered the effects of the curse, it didn't suffer the natural effects of the curse to the same degree that we do today. There was a higher fertility rate. People lived longer there was less sicknesses, and certainly genetic illnesses wouldn't have been as common, perhaps probably very uncommon at that particular time. So it was an entirely different place, and mankind was very different from what mankind is today. Still people, still human beings, of course, but there were differences. And so the world population was probably much higher in the years before the flood than 
And we realize or we understand. But we can't be certain of this, that after the flood, after the great deluge in the book of Genesis, the world's population has now reached a new peak. And then the years after the flood, certainly there has never been more people living on the planet than there is at this point in time. Now, this ought to be of interest to the church of God. Certainly, it's of interest in the news, and the scientists, they take an interest in this, and governments take an interest in this, the rising population. But we should be very interested in it in a spiritual matter, because it's not so long ago the world's population hit 7 billion, and now it just seems a few years later, and the population is rising, rising very rapidly. Now, we should be interested in the rising population of the world because God is interested in it. And how do I know God is interested in it? Well, have we not read from John chapter 3 and the verse 16, for God so loved the world? And he's not talking there about the planet. He's talking about the people that live in the planet. He's talking about men and women from all the continents of the earth. God has a love for the world. He cares about the world of humanity, and so should we as the people of God. So let's just think about this very unique, unprecedented, and incredible statistic from a biblical and a Christian perspective. In the first place, let's think about the challenge. Eight billion souls and rising. What challenges does this bring? Now, it is self-evident that the world's rapidly increasing population presents certain natural challenges. And we hear about these natural challenges all the time. In fact, it is all that the media seem to be interested in. It is all that secular science seems to be interested in, the natural challenges. There is the challenge of sustainability. Can the world cope with the relentless upsurge of people? Together we breathe the oxygen, and we eat the food, all of which is produced within this planet. And that in itself is a miraculous thing. For God has made this world, and He has given us this planet, and it's a planet that's full of life. And there's no other planet like it in the universe. They have their telescopes that peer far into space, can't find any place like earth, doesn't exist anywhere. And only earth has the processes that enable life to flourish. And yet, here we have eight billion people breathing, being fed in this world by that which is produced within this world. And of course, who is it that has put the world in place? Who is it that produces all of the processes of nature that enable us to live and to be sustained? It's God! And so eight billion souls and rising is an incredible tribute to the creative genius of our God. And we, we should not miss that. But practicalities would teach us that every life support system is finite. Our own homes could only sustain a limited number of people, and then everything starts to creak, and there's pressures and we don't really know what the limits are in relation to this world. God alone knows what the limit is, but they certainly exist. So increasing 
population is going to put a strain upon the resources of the earth. Now, here in the Western world, and certainly living here in Ireland, we do not really understand the full impact of rising population. Now, Ireland did suffer one time from rising population and from a population that put the whole island under immense strain. Before the famine, there was double the people living in Ireland that there is today. There must have been people everywhere, right across the countryside. And there was so much poverty, and so many people were dependent upon the potato, and then you had the dreadful potato famine, and then you had the mass emigration, people moving away. And it's only comparatively recently that the Irish population, both north and south, has started to be stabilized and has actually started rising. And for many years, that did not happen. And today, we're really underpopulated. Certainly compared with huge tracts of the earth, we're an underpopulated island. But that being said, a rising population is a challenge for everyone. There's more poverty. There certainly is lots of poverty in the world, particularly in places where there's a huge population. There's more immigration, and that's a huge topic in Britain, immigration. A lot of that's caused by rising population. And there's going to be more conflict. In fact, throughout history, where you have rising population, you have more conflict. The Roman Empire collapsed because of rising population. The north of Europe, the the area we call Germany today, the Germanic tribes, they experienced a, a huge rise in population, and their land would not sustain them, and so they moved into the Roman Empire, and they moved with such force that the mighty legions of the Roman Empire couldn't sustain them, and the whole map of Europe was redrawn at that particular time. So where you have rising population, you have more threat of war, and the, the borders of nations can be redrawn as a consequence of all of that. High population growth produces intense social problems, social problems that are caused by many people living close together. But the biggest challenge, however, is one that's seldom discussed in the media, never. It's probably not discussed enough, even by Christians, because we we think of eight billion souls and rising. We think of people, 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 eight billion, not just lives, but souls that will live forever, either in God's heaven or God's hell. Eight billion sinners, and billions of them have never even heard the gospel. And if they don't hear the gospel, they won't come to faith. And if they don't come to faith, they go to hell. And that is the challenge. And the challenge of the church is not the sustainability, the social problems. That's for other people to deal with. The sin question is the most intense, the most urgent need that exists as we look at this incredible statistic. The two largest nations by population size are China and India. And both of those countries have more than a billion people. Any of the reports I have read seem to point to China having a population of people and amongst that population of people there are 100 million Protestants now 
That's, that's not 100 million Christians. Normally, Christianity is counted in terms of who's Roman Catholic, who's Orthodox, who's Protestant. And all these groups are lumped together as nominally Christian. That, that's how the world looks at Christianity. But it is believed that in China, there's 100 million Protestants. Now, that's a tenth of the population of China, less than a tenth. But in many respects, and this is a surprising fact, in terms of the numbers of Christians, it makes China the most Christian nation on earth. And yet there are still many in that place who have never heard of Jesus. Many, many hundreds of millions. In India, the picture is very different. Only 2% of the Indian population are Christian, and, and that is Christian, including all the different sects that are called Christianity, all the different denominations. And within that 2%, evangelical Protestants would be much smaller. So in India, the picture is radically different. But despite all of that, we begin to realize the hundreds of millions and the billions of the world who need Christ. Now, if we take the false religions that dominate the world, we get a sense of the challenge that faces the Christian church. We think of Islam. Islam has almost two billion adherents. Now, there's lots of different shades within Islam. There's the Sunnis and there's the Shiites and all the other smaller groups that call themselves Muslim. But just taking that as a headline figure, there's two billion people. That's 25% of the world is Muslim. One quarter of the world of humanity is Muslim. Then you think of Hinduism. One billion people are followers of the Hindu gods, and Buddhism has half a billion. And suddenly that gives you a figure that's close to four billion people. Close to four billion people engaged in belief systems that take them totally away from Jesus Christ. But then there's another statistic that in many ways is a tribute to the effect of Christianity in the world. But it also exposes the, the flaws within Christianity. The largest religion in the group, the largest religion in the world is, is actually Christianity. And that's Christianity taking in all the different shades of Christianity. So some of that is false Christianity, some of it is true Christianity. But there are more than two billion professing Christians in the world. Now, that means there's two billion people, more than two billion people. More than 25% of the world say that we believe that there was a man called Jesus who died and rose again. It really doesn't matter whether you're Roman Catholic or Orthodox or, or whether you're Protestant or whether you're Evangelical Protestant. You, you have that belief system. And of course, that's a good place to start when it comes to witnessing to people. Whenever people have this belief system in their heads, there was a man called Jesus who died and rose again. That in itself is a tribute to the way in which Christianity is spread, but yet there's another side to that story. There's false Christianity, there's apostate Christianity, there's nominal Christianity, there's normal, nominal Protestants there who simply call themselves Protestants and they really know nothing of a living faith in Jesus Christ. And the evangelical Protestants within that group are so much smaller. But that being said, because of the huge population of the world, 
there are probably more evangelical believers in the world today than any time in history. So the world population is enormous. And although evangelical Christians as a percentage of the world population has probably dropped over this past few years, probably that may not be the case, as we'll see a little later. But the numbers of Christians across the world gives us an incredible opportunity, gives the people of God an incredible opportunity of reaching the dying sections of the world that know nothing of Jesus Christ. You know, we together, and, and this is the part we can play in this little place where God has placed us and given us to serve Him. We, we need this vision of a world of sinners lost. That's what we need tonight. We need the Spirit of Christ. How does Christ view these souls? These souls. Souls that are caught perhaps in some kind of nominal Christianity. Gives them no hope. A false Christianity where they're seeking religion by works not depending on Christ. Those that are followers of Muhammad. Those that are worshipping all the little gods and idols. Those that are following secularism and atheism as being an interpretation of the world and of society and of history and of the future. How do we view those people? We must view them as Christ views them. How does Christ view them? Christ views them as he viewed Jerusalem in Matthew 23, 37. He said, How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, but ye would not. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he said. He lamented. We need the lament of Christ for a dying world. We need the heart of compassion that Christ had. And this is the challenge, for we don't feel that compassion as we should. Matthew 9, 36. When he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. The multitudes were before him. The multitudes are before us. The world is so much smaller now by virtue of modern communication. We know so much more. We know so much more about the peoples of the world and the cultures of the world and the religions of the world. And as we see the multitudes, do we have that heart of Christ? Because they're scattered abroad. They are sheep without a shepherd. But ultimately, the fundamental sin committed by humanity, and this is the most heartbreaking thing of all is the sin of unbelief. And it really doesn't matter whether the person is, is in a mosque or a Buddhist temple, or whether the person is in a chapel or a cathedral or an evangelical Protestant church such as this. It really doesn't matter. Because you go to the same hell if you don't believe and Jesus Christ. You know, the Lord was heartbroken when he looked at the people that he witnessed to and ministered to while he was on this earth. People who came from the very district where he grew up, around Galilee. And he said of these people who rejected him in Matthew chapter 11, in the verse 21, he said, Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. 
and thou Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which had been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained unto this day. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. And the people of Capernaum would go to the same hell as the people of Sodom. But yet the Lord said, your judgment would be greater because Sodom never had Christ. And you have Christ, you turn away from him. We're judged according to light. The more light we have, the more privilege we have, the more opportunity we have, the more of the Bible we have, the greater our judgment. If we turn away from that light, there's a doctrine that's called the degrees of punishment. Hell is intensified, it is made hotter for those that have heard the gospel and have turned away. And that's the greatest tragedy of all. Be sure tonight that you're in the faith. When the day of judgment dawns, the question, you know, will not concern the billions that have ever lived. The question will concern the individuals. And the question will be asked of you. How will it be with your soul in that day? How is it with your soul now? Have you responded to the word of God that is presented here? And so we have the challenge. Let's also move on to think about the, the commission. We hear many ideas as to how the world should cope with and deal with the world's rising population. Scientists and politicians discuss things such as birth control measures, environmental protections, many other things. But we know the real need. We know what the commission is. We know what we are commissioned to do. And we know what the 8 billion people in the world need. It's the gospel. And the church has a unique mandate. And that mandate is the Great Commission. The most often quoted, best-known version of the Great Commission comes from our Lord's lips in Matthew 28, as they are recorded in Matthew 28. Go ye therefore. And that's what the Lord is calling us to do, to go. To go and teach all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you all, even unto the end of the earth. And the Lord was giving his disciples the full authority, the full authority that church still has today to go and to teach all nations. And there you have the eight billion souls. Go and teach all nations. Never in history have we had such an opportunity. We, never in history has the church had such a mission field. The gospel alone is the answer for every individual that lives in the world today, whatever their problems. The gospel can do what nothing else can do. The authority of Christ, the mandate of Christ, the command that must be preached, the obedience to be followed, the urgency to accomplish this mission before Jesus Christ comes, the promise of success. None of this has changed in 2,000 years of history. Luke records another version of the Great Commission. We have that here in Acts chapter 1. And the verse 8. And in this version of the Great Commission, we note the utter dependency upon the power of the Holy Ghost. That this commission cannot be fulfilled by the church unless the Holy Ghost is come upon us. And with the Holy Ghost coming upon us, we are commissioned to be witnesses. 
Witnesses, yes, in the uttermost parts of the earth. But before we can start thinking about the uttermost parts of the earth, we need to be witnesses in Jerusalem. God will never call anyone to do a work far away if they don't, first of all, do a work not far away. God will never call anyone to Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth unless they are, first of all, doing a work at home in their own locality, in their own area. If we don't have a testimony for Christ here in our own church, in our own community, we won't have a testimony anywhere. The training ground for serving Christ is here in this church, in this congregation, in this community where God has placed us. And yes, God does call us to go, to go with our giving. There are some whom he will call to go personally. Perhaps there's a young person here and God will raise you up and call you to go to a place away from your own culture. But if you are to be trained and made ready for that work, you must first of all do your work here because this is Jerusalem. And if you don't have a burden for the souls near you, don't you be thinking that God's going to use you anywhere else because Jerusalem is where it begins. That's how we start doing God's work, looking for opportunities to serve Christ. And they exist. They are all around us. The Lord, in this commission, as Luke records it, exhorted his people, taught his people, commanded his people to go out of their own comfort zone, not to remain within Jerusalem, but to go to Judea, not to remain within Judea, but to go to Samaritans, whom the Jews hated and despised, and then to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. At times, God calls us to move out of our own comfort zone, to go to people who perhaps naturally would rather not go to, in order that we might bring Christ to them, to go to places we never thought of going to those places because they need Jesus Christ and because God wants us to serve him there. We must always be open to this. And God has a plan and a purpose for us that perhaps we have not yet realized and we need that obedient heart to go wherever he would have us to go in order that this great commission might be fulfilled. The gospel must be proclaimed. And this is the whole thing about this mandate. The gospel needs to be preached. It's a message of faith in Christ. It's also a message of repentance from sin. In Ezekiel 33, verse 11, the Lord said concerning the wicked, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, he said, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? Turn ye from your evil ways. A message that comes from God himself. It's a message for you tonight. If you don't know Christ, I'm speaking to you just for a moment. If you're not saved tonight, you need to listen to this. The Lord is saying to you, I have no pleasure in your death. I have no pleasure in you dying and losing your soul. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways. Turn from your sin. Turn from your unbelief. Turn from your Christ's rejection. Turn to Jesus Christ. Turn now. Why will you die without Christ? Well, that's the message the world needs to hear. It's the message you need to hear. God wants the Christian to go by praying for laborers. Yes, we are to give. We are to support those that go. We are to be willing to go ourselves, even if we don't end up going, because that's not God's purpose for us. We should have that willingness to go, that submission to go, if that's what the Lord wants us to do. Why should we dwell at ease when billions across the world are going to hell? That's the great question. But he wants us to go by praying for laborers. 
to pray for the Lord of the harvest that He will send forth laborers into His harvest. Praying for a world of sinners lost, ever having the great international vision, the church upon our hearts. For how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? And then I think of the words of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 and the verse 8. Well, the Lord said to him, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then Isaiah said, Here am I, send me. And perhaps there's one tonight, and you'll say, Lord, here am I, send me. I want you to think about the comfort in closing. What should comfort us greatly is that God is in control. God has not permitted this world to have this huge burgeoning population for the purpose of sending them to hell. God has a purpose of grace in the midst of all of that. I believe that with all my heart. Second Peter 3 verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning His promise as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God has a purpose in permitting the world to grow. Let me suggest one thought that I find very comforting. As the population grows, the numbers of younger people will also grow. That's self-evident. Africa, by far, is the youngest planet, the, the youngest continent in the planet in terms of the, the age of the people in that continent. The nations with the highest ratio of young people are found in Africa. And we know from experience and we know from statistics that the most opportune time for anyone to come to Christ is whenever they are young. That's an encouragement for us to reach young people, to minister to young people, to minister to children, because the heart is tender. If you're here tonight and you're a young person and you're not saved... This is your time. This is your opportunity. It, it, it's not for the future. It's for now. Because if your heart becomes hardened over time, it'll be less likely that you'll come to Christ. I don't say impossible. For a man can still be born again when he is old. It's Nicodemus discovered. But youth is the time. Youth is the opportunity. And if you turn away from Christ tonight, your heart will be harder this time next week. And he that being often reproved, he hardens his neck, and then one day he's cut off and not without remedy. And so why God is speaking, why God is calling you, you need to come. But coming back to Africa, Africa is the continent that's most ripe for missionary endeavor I think of the Kurskadan family and they're going to Uganda. Uganda has one of the youngest populations of young people in the world. Uh, something like 45% of that population are, are very young. And what an amazing mission field that is. And so let's pray the children of the world into the kingdom. You know, we despair for the the Western world. We do despair for the Western world. We are part of the Western world. And we see this slide into secularism and atheism and into immorality. And we don't have to go over all the immorality of this age. We know them all 
so well. But yet there's something about the nations of Western Europe, something that is troubling and may in fact be a judgment. The nations of Western Europe, many of them, are among the oldest populations in the world. And the future of the world is not found in Europe. It's found in Africa. It's found where the young people are. That's where the future of the world is. And that's got to be where the future of the growth of the church of Christ in the future is going to be. Because the part of the world in which we are a part, I know that in this island we're, we're fairly young in population, but that's not so in many of the nations in Western Europe. Europe is a continent that's dying, literally, despite the many opportunities it has had. But another area of the world to watch carefully in terms of church growth, and I find this astonishing, is Iran. Iran's never out of the news because of the tensions between the population there that just do not want the strict rules of the Islamic State and the state itself. And there's this tussle going on. People are dying. People are rising. And many commentators are saying Iran will never be the same again. But in the midst of all of that, God is working in Iran in a remarkable fashion. After the revolution in 1979, it is reckoned, and this is according to British government statistics, it's not coming from a, 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 a Christian organization. So we could take these figures and we could say, well, they're not jaundiced in a way to put Christianity down. After 1979, it is believed that there were something like 500 Christians in Iran who had converted from the Muslim faith. You know what that is today? One million. And all kinds of people that looked at Iran are saying that. The, the, the place where evangelical, Christian, evangelical Christianity is rising most rapidly is in Iran. And Christianity is repressed in Iran. There's nothing materially to attract someone to be a Christian in Iran. If, if you're found trying to proselytize uh, somebody and take somebody out of the Islam faith into the Christian faith, the penalties are severe. There's pastors in prison in Iran. And yet, Iranians are coming to Christ. They're embracing the Savior. And they're converting in huge numbers and have been. And it's alarming the Islamic State. God's at work. And we could say that's a breath of revival. And I think we keep our eyes on Iran and pray that that land will get freedom so that God's people will be able to take the torch of the gospel to an even greater degree to the peoples of that nation. The teeming multitudes of this world, and this is another comforting thought, give us a glimpse of the only place in Scripture where we read of a multitude that cannot be numbered. Eight billion there's ways of numbering the population of the world. But the Bible tells us of a place, only one place, where there is a multitude that cannot be numbered. And of course, we know where that place is. It is found in Revelation 7, verse 9. A multitude made up of all nations, all kindreds, all tongues. They're before the throne, before the Lamb. They're worshiping Christ. Oh, what a comforting scene that is. 
You know, we have new ways of reaching humanity nowadays. People can travel faster to places. And we have mass communication. We have the internet. We have media. We have live stream. We have so many ways of communicating with people that live in far-flung corners of the world. Has God not been using all of this for his glory and for the growth of his kingdom? I believe that he has. And I believe we've just seen a little tip of the iceberg of what God can do. And the rising population of this world should encourage us to pray for worldwide revival, for the conversion of the nations, for the spread of the gospel into all the earth. You know, God gave man a natural mandate. He gave it to Adam and Eve, and then he gave it to Noah to go forth and multiply, to replenish the earth, to fill the earth with people. Man has been doing that. What God has set forth for man has been done. The world has been populated with billions of people. But then there is this other spiritual mandate to go to those millions of people and billions with the gospel so that the elect of God would one day be gathered from the four winds of heaven and brought into that great multitude that no man can number. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's a great message. And let us view the world's population with a sense of opportunity. And let's give and let's pray. Let's support. Let's witness. Let's do God's work here. Let's help them that do God's work elsewhere. And let's have a burden for this world that God would work. And as he is doing something in Iran, the spirit is moving. Let's pray he would move here. You know, we despair about the state of Christianity here. We despair about all of that. Commentators were saying Christianity is finished in Iran. It's not finished, for God's not finished. And I don't believe God's finished with this country either. And so let's keep these things in our thoughts. And if you do not know the Lord is your Savior, I appeal to you, I urge you, come to Christ tonight. There are people hearing of Christ for the first time. They're bowing the knee to him. You've heard him many times. May this be your opportunity, your time. Today, if you will hear his voice. Today. Now is your day of salvation. Will you come? Let's bow for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the word of God. We pray you would write it upon every heart. Uh, thrill our hearts in your presence.